You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. What's going on, my brother? Oh, everything, man. How very exciting times. How are you? You sound excited, man. I, uh, <laughs> I, I hear you saying excitement. I just, I, I don't, uh, I don't hear the excitement. I hear the words, but not the actual excitement, man. But uh, I hope everything is well. And I'm guessing, Chris, that you're too busy in these streets campaigning and all that to actually be watching the NBA uh, playoffs. So I'm not watching the games. I am looking in on the playoffs, though. I get okay, I so get you're keeping up with the that. scores and all that because I figured, hey, I know you're working hard. There may be some disinterest because your team's not in it. Uh, you know, my teams are. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you weren't catching it. But I did want to let you know that there's some good games going on, man. I mean, my Nets are doing excellent. They're up two now. Uh, I think, you know, I think they're going to breeze through this series. Uh, the Lakers um, lucked up and Chris Paul got hurt. So they ended up tying up the series and they'll probably do their thing in this series. Uh, it's all good. But this is, I mean, this is some of the most exciting basketball I've seen in a long time. There's a lot of good teams. I think there's going to be some really competitive uh, games coming up. And even in that first set of games, there were like, man, three three upsets. So it's 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 getting good, man. I'm going to be trying to check it out. I did watch the play-in games. I watched those. And so I have an opportunity uh, a few times to catch some games. So I'm looking forward okay. to that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we'll work on your priorities, brother. You know, we'll work on those and then we'll get back to the folks after that. Um, but always, man, you know that we got a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of important stuff. And I'm we're glad that everybody is joining us again for the Church Politics Podcast. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. The first subject I want to talk about, Chris, is. Dealing with policing, just dealing with the rise in crime uh, that we're seeing all over the country. And I want to I want to point to a, a quote that was made. Uh, Fulton County uh, District Attorney Fannie Willis, who is the new district attorney uh, here in Atlanta. She's a black female prosecutor. She made a statement, Chris, that really, in, in my opinion. Is the opposite of the defund the police slogan. Uh, that much maligned slogan, at least on this show, I think what Fannie Willis was saying is actually the opposite of that. And here's what she said. She said, let me say something really unpopular this morning. Our police need our help. Violent crime is out of control. It is completely unacceptable. People should be able to go to a pool party, shopping, dinner and to the club without fear of being killed. Now, Chris, mind you, this isn't some influencer just running her mouth for likes and tweets. This is a leader who, who is actually tasked with keeping people safe. This is a person who actually has to deal with the murders, 
deal with the assaults, deal with the families who have been victimized. And she's saying, and, and it's, it's unfortunate that this would be a controversial statement. And I think that statement that the police need our help is controversial, partially because of the, you know, some of the actions of police officers. I mean, let's be honest about that. But also just because I think in certain parts of the country, in certain demographics, people have turned against, you know, have almost have the feeling that helping the police at all is a bad thing. Right. Um, and so she makes this statement coming from a place of somebody who has to deal with these issues. And she's saying, look, we need the help of the community. And the truth of the matter is even the best of police can't do it by themselves because you don't necessarily want them to be so heavy handed. So if if that's the case, then the community does have to find ways to be helpful. Because what we're seeing right now is that even as the lockdown ends, the crime is still rising. It's rising in Atlanta. It's rising in other places. Crime has risen virtually in every major city. Right. If you look at what's going on here in Atlanta, homicides are the highest that they've been in 30 years. Our police force is shorthanded and the morale is low. And there's some questionable decisions that have been made about, you know, getting rid of the gang unit and all that. And we're dealing with it. The people are dealing with it. Mostly the people who don't have the money to to, to kind of go away from it or to go to other places. But it's not only in Atlanta, as I mentioned. Shootings have more than doubled in New York City. Uh, and, and homicides have increased 44%. Homicides. Almost 50 percent have risen, almost 50 percent. That's a lot of people. There was a Christianity article uh, uh, earlier this week that that told some of the stories of the people who are being murdered. Uh, one was Devell Gardner Jr. Jr. He was the age of one. He was killed while sitting in his stroller at a summer barbecue. Then you had Edward Jones, a church custodian who was shot in the back inside of a house of worship. Next, they talk about Anthony Robinson, a father who was killed holding his daughter's hand as he helped her cross the street. The hood around the nation is in complete disarray, and we still have people who are talking about defund the police. And I think one of the questions that has to be asked here, Chris, Is are we going to look at these statistics in the face and hold our narratives or are we actually going to face the facts? You know where the AND campaign stands on this, Chris. We need police reform. But let's be serious. We also need our police. Now, I'm seriously concerned and committed to working towards significant police reform. But I also know that most of the innocent people that are killed are not killed by police officers. Now, regardless of where you stand on these issues, we have to deal with that fact. And they don't come back to life just because they weren't murdered as a result of a police shooting. These lives are just as valuable as any other life. And I understand the idea behind the difference between when they're shot by police because there is an abuse of power there. I'm not fighting against that. What I'm pointing to is these are still lives that have been lost. And they don't come back to life just because it wasn't a police shooting. We must have serious changes, but defunding the police is not the answer. How about some support? For the ones that are trying to do it right, we got this whole thing about, oh, where are the good police? There are good. There are folks who put their lives on the line every day. How do we support those folks as a community, as a church? 
We have to deal with this violent crime. And I was listening to Ezra Klein, uh, uh, his podcast, his New York Times podcast, and he made a pretty good point. And here's what here's the point that he he he, he uh, made. And I think it was from a, a sociologist from Princeton kind of made this point. And I thought I thought it, it, it made sense. We know that crime is to some extent generated by inequality. That's real. But what he said also was that it's important to recognize that crime exacerbates inequality as well. That crime makes the inequality worse. Here's what we mean. When violent crime is high, important businesses close or they just choose not to open in certain places where they may be needed most. Parks and public uh, and other public spaces close. Children are forced to stay indoors. Children develop attention disorders and they develop issues with impulse control. Academic performance among children who are in these high crime areas drops. And the families that live in these areas are less likely to escape poverty when the crime is high. So we can't just, you know, we always talk about, Chris, not isolating a certain issue. We absolutely if you take this to say we don't care about police reform or we don't think there's an issue, it is an issue. We absolutely need to deal with that issue. But if your solution is taking more people off the streets who can actually prevent these crimes and leaving these children and especially our elders, too, in a position where they're being terrorized in their neighborhoods, then something's got to give. We have to have some nuance. We have to be willing to think about these issues outside of our narratives. Our ideological tribes are going to give us these reductionist flat narratives that say, hey, here's the easy answer. Let's just defund the police. And even if the facts don't align with that, even if that's not what's best for the community who you claim to be protecting, we're still going to hold on to that regardless because we're too prideful and we hate the other side too much to admit we may have gotten it wrong or that it's not exactly like we would want to say that it is. What are we going to do here? How are we as a church going to work to fix this issue outside of the narratives and outside of just seeing policy as something abstract? Chris, what are your thoughts? I mean, I'm so glad that we're discussing this because like uh, Atlanta and New York, city of Chicago is seeing an increase uh, in violent crimes, uh, an increase in homicides, an increase in gun violence. Uh, in 2021 over 2020. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks had credited the uh, the shutdowns with 2020 spikes uh, in violence. But here we are. Uh, the city has been much more open uh, all of 2021 than it was for most of uh, 2020. And numbers are on the rise. Uh, we just hosted a conversation a week ago, last Sunday, uh, we hosted a conversation about reimagining public safety uh, here in Chicago. And I really think, Justin, this is just another one of those places where uh, where the church can really lead uh, when it comes to, you know, living on the straight and narrow, right? Like there is such a temptation right now to fall into uh one of two ditches, uh, one which is very kind of like police protectionist. Nothing needs to change with the police. Everything uh, is the the fault of some other part of the society. Uh, and then you have that ditch of, hey, defund, abolish, 
we don't need police. Uh, and the reality is somewhere in the middle, right? I, I, I tend to believe that reforming policing is on the same road uh, of supporting police. Uh, if you if you don't think that policing can get better, um, that's probably a misguided thought. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Policing can certainly improve. Everything uh, can improve. But we do need a concerted effort on public safety. And the community has to come together with the police department and other elements of the public safety framework and figure out how we get to this. Because what we forget when we are leaning so much into these narratives is that people are actually dying. Communities are actually dying. While most of the argument is being had among folks who are not being directly impacted by this, sitting on television shows and doing interviews and all this type of stuff, but not really being directly impacted by this. And in the meantime, folks are actually dying. And so we have to find a way to come together on this. It's not going to work to just abolish the police. Folks who believe in that, and I get where folks come from from that, because this is a, a situation that has become increasingly troubling in recent times with police abuse of power, police violence against communities. It cannot go unchecked. It cannot go undealt with. And so I get where people, especially young folks who are coming along and are just terribly frustrated with some of the bad stuff that police officers, certain police officers have done in recent times and really over a long, long time. I get where folks are coming from with that. But we have to remember that abolishing the police as a policy is extremely, extremely speculative. People do stand up and espouse these positions with tremendous confidence as if they've seen it work somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they haven't. A lot of these people have degrees, letters behind their names, institutions under their influence. And so it's very tempting to listen to them and to believe that what they're talking about is some kind of a rock solid plan. But we have to understand that it is not. It's profoundly speculative. And if you apply your good sense, as my granny would say, to that framework, you live in a community, any of the communities across the south, southwest side of Chicago, all throughout Atlanta, New York, cities all over the country. You may not have letters behind your name. Maybe you do. But my granny would say, use your good sense. And if you use your good sense and think about what would happen if we just suddenly abolished police departments, that is not going to make our communities safer. That is not good going sense. to. It's not going to save people's lives. We exactly. have to work together with our police departments, uh, especially the investigatory role that the police play, right? Solving these crimes is going to be incredibly important. And that's something that the police cannot do without those in the neighborhoods who know some of the folks who are doing some of the 
the bad actions and who the bad actors are in the community. And if we don't work together with the police to investigate and solve these crimes, they're going to just perpetuate. So, you know, we have to do this. And I know it's not easy. I know there is a legitimate uh, call for profound change in how we do policing. But we have to come together on this because every day that we don't, we're losing people. And that's the problem. A lot of these ideas, i.e. defund the police, are ideologically sound. They check all the boxes. They have the right bad guy and all that other stuff. They, they follow the right storyline. But they don't make any good sense. Right. They just I mean, if you brought it to you to the to the sister who's been in that neighborhood and seeing crime wave come and go, she's going to look at you like you're crazy. If you say that when she you know, when she wants to call the police and they could have had somebody there, they can't come because you decided to defund them. And what we're seeing in a lot of these cities that did defund the police is that they're refunding the police. So it's a it's a we're seeing that as you pointed out, people are talking about it like it's a, a proven thing. Right. Like like they can actually prove that it works. But in the instances where it, where it was done, just even for a little bit, it's failed. And even the very progressive politicians who pushed it are saying, all right, I want to I want to stay in office or I want to help people. I mean, the people are good, you know, have good intentions. They're saying this this has to has to stop. This isn't to say that we don't need more investment in the community, that we don't need more opportunities for folks to go to the local uh, uh, the local center and play sports or do reading and get tutoring. Absolutely. Let's let's go ahead with those investments. But we have to understand human nature enough to know that's not it by itself either. Uh, And there are some people who would say, hey, man, if I have the opportunity to do something different, I'm trying to get away from these folks. Let me do something different. My heart breaks for those folks that that would make that decision but don't have the option. And then sadly, there may be folks who could have that option. And because of the culture they're in, because of the, the influences that they have, they wouldn't make that decision either way. Right. And so we can't get rid of our policing. I love how you brought out this false dichotomy. And this is and, you know, this is kind of the worry that as crime rises, you're going to get this 90s response of throw everybody, you know, overly harsh, the overly harsh response. So on one end, you have overly harsh policing, over overly harsh uh, policy. And then you have the well, the problem is just the police, which, again, shows a misunderstanding even of just human nature, you know, even of how any type of sociology and how people react to disincentives and, and 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 all the things that police can bring to a to a conversation. Do we want police not to have to interact in situations where they shouldn't be and they can escalate it? Yes. So we're not pushing them back against every single policy that could make this better. We want police reform. Defunding the police again is just not how you make it happen. And I want to say this. Shout out to the brothers and sisters like Chris who have been fighting gun violence for a long time. What I'm not trying to do is say that our community hasn't been concerned about that. The folks who are really in the community, really doing the work, really know the people have been on that for a minute. So shout out to you, Chris, and all the folks around the country and in churches and everywhere who have been focused on that. Anything quickly to uh, to take us out of this segment, Chris? Yeah, I just remind people of two things. One, I'm not telling you to take my position on this per se. I think the the goal is to say to the Christian, just don't uncritically embrace uh, that narrative. Apply your own good sense to it. Uh, And as you do that, apply biblical principles. 
we still believe the Bible and Romans 13 tells us that God ordained the officer, right, to carry the sword, um, you know, in, in his name. So policing, folks want to tell you policing is from the devil, it came from slavery, you know, that kind of thing. Those things are historically untrue and certainly theologically untrue. Uh, so apply a good sense, do your own research, and don't just embrace the narrative. There it is. We'll be back in a minute on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back. Justin Gibney and Reverend Chris Butler on the Church Politics Podcast. This week in, in Christianity Today, Chris, uh, I wrote an article about how many highly educated and cosmopolitan Christians are seriously tempted by secular approval. In this moment when social justice is a very hot topic, many Christians are rightly trying to confront the fact that large parts of the church have simply failed when it comes to justice and showing compassion for others. And Chris, we know that this is true when it comes to race. We know it's true when it comes to gender. We know it's true when it comes to our LGBTQ neighbors. And this is a necessary thing to do. It's good that believers have identified the problem and are attempting to solve it. Because as many of you know, that's part of the objectives of the AND campaign. These are important things to do. And as I wrote in the article, though, the problem is that this earnest pursuit of justice can be just as misguided as the problem it's addressing. I think too many believers have uncritically embraced plainly secular progressive prescriptions to solve the problem. I've noticed this, especially in the professional class and among academics. Chris, there is this uh, infatuation with the trending secular theories. We're in awe of these professors and these experts who have made kind of an industry out of this work. And we're not examining the concepts with a critical eye. Again, I think that this effort is mostly sincere, but there are a few different motives and issues at play here. And one of those issues that's at play in, in my analysis is insecurity. I believe a lot of Christians go into academia and go into the professional world somewhat insecure, wanting and needing to impress their secular minded professors and wanting to fit in with this new peer group in their profession. And they know that many people in this group, not everybody, but many people in these groups look down on orthodox Christian beliefs. So what do you do at that point, Chris? You assimilate. You prove and you demonstrate that you value the same things that your peers and your professors value. Most of us don't have the confidence in the biblical foundation to understand that we can master our craft without seeking validation on matters of opinion from others, without drinking the Kool-Aid, without swallowing the propaganda. We often don't know how to separate, Chris, the propaganda from the substance of the subject matter. We take them both down the same way. So I think one of the one of the major things is this kind of insecurity among Christians when they go into those fields. But secondly, Chris, I think there's something else at play here, too. 
I think there's a sense of elitism that plays into this as well. We like to demonstrate that we have this special knowledge that secular elites have deemed sacred. We think new ideas are better ideas in a lot of instances, and we see it as a mark of intelligence to disagree and correct the old saints. To to assume that old time religion is pretty much wrong on all the things that culture has said it's wrong on. If culture has confronted us on the issue, then old time religion must have been wrong on that particular issue. We want this elite, enlightened identity. So we repeat the vocabulary and imitate the sensibilities because it comes with the acceptance that we hold so dear. And let me give you an example, Chris. And I love these people. I'm I'm part of this group, but I got to keep it real. Most of my attorney friends would never question the Equality Act or gender identity ideology publicly, no matter how clear the contradictions are. Most of my doctor friends would never question late term abortions at any stage because they know that would be frowned upon within their peer group. And most of my friends who are educators aren't going to question the popular educational journal or the expert that presented at the last conference they attended. No matter how novel or untested the theory was that they were presenting. And Chris, that is a recipe for disaster. That is no way for Christians to to conduct themselves in the public square. And I know because I've been there. So I'm not talking about something that I'm not subject to, that I haven't succumbed to to some extent, but it's serious. And Chris, I know you know this. I'm especially concerned about this among K through 12 administrators and teachers, some of whom are Christians. But every new progressive policy that comes about whether it's in regard to gender identity or or intersectionality, it's accepted and implemented with very little independent scrutiny. In fact, with no scrutiny, with no scrutiny in regard to the larger context of moral order. We are not considering how this stuff fits into God's design. All we need to hear, all we need to know is that someone tells us that the, that this is what smart people do and this is the compassionate policy. And our examination ends there. Now, I need to look back up, Chris. I really do need to look up this research paper that I was looking at, because what this research paper said was it showed that that highly educated people are the most likely to base their opinions on group identity. In other words, Chris, these people who are supposed to be the smartest in our society, the people who are teaching everybody else stuff and consulting everybody else on on stuff are basing their opinions, not on their own critical determinations and diligent examination or theological positions, but instead they're basing their opinion on what they're told smart people are supposed to think. Chew on that for a second. And that's why in the article, I use the example of the emperor having no clothes. 
The people in that parable were told that they should be able to see the emperor's non-existent clothes. So they acted like they could see those non-existent clothes so that they could fit in and feel sophisticated. And that's exactly what's going on here. It's not about the mental or spiritual work to come to the right conclusion or make sure the conclusion is biblically sound. It's about adopting the values of the elite class. Fitting the profile of the sophisticated and enlightened rather than making sure these concepts are morally correct. Making sure that they, what'd you say, make good sense and that they're faithful. And I'll go so far as to say this. If presented by the right experts and professional journals, I think that we would believe and follow almost anything. They could tell us to drive down the street with blinders on and we would do it if the white right messengers and the right narrative were behind it. And if we could get some professional award or acknowledgement for doing it, because that's pretty much what we're doing, Chris. We're racing forward, blind to the moral and spiritual consequences of the ideologies that we've espoused for the sake of validation. But at least our peers will consider us progressive now because that's the ultimate compliment. Not only are we not like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego when they refuse to bow to the king's image. Some of us would unwittingly volunteer to light the fiery furnace if that's what it took to gain approval. Some of us are ashamed of the gospel. We wield influence in the church and criticize old time religion with our new vocabulary, but we refuse to even question plainly absurd concepts from the quote unquote experts. We're Samson inside the church, but wouldn't bust a grape to challenge our professional peer group outside the church. Weigh in on this, Chris. I'm so glad for the article. Uh, that you wrote, Justin, is such a, an important topic for us to discuss in the church. Uh, I just don't think we are talking about it in the church enough, what our witness uh, and our life uh, has to look like, both when it comes to the compassion of Scripture, but also to the conviction of Scripture in our professional lives, in our secular lives, if you will. Uh, and it is becoming an, an increasing problem. You know, what, what I have tried to remind folks uh, in the church that I lead is that you actually don't gain professional success by fitting in. You gain professional success by standing out, by changing things, by saving the world. And one of the problems with a lot of the ideology that's being embraced right now is that it is all so new, all so speculative, and um, you know it is it is the best hypothesis of the so-called uh, best minds. But it is this is not proven stuff. Like this is not something that anybody can point to real long-term data and say, this is going to fix the world. And when we sit with it and think about it, 
yes, theologically, but even when you think about it sociologically, when you think about it just logically, a lot of it doesn't add up. Uh, the contradictions are extremely profound. Um, the gaps are extremely noticeable. And we are asked not only to set aside our theological viewpoints, but we're also being asked to set aside our intelligence and our ability to think critically uh, just about the issues. And I love the way uh, in the article you use Daniel, because Daniel's a profound example of this. Um, I thought about, as, as I was reading the article, you know, in Daniel chapter one, when, you know, the uh, the servant is supposed to be training these new wise men. And, you know, so they're learning the language, they're changing their diet and doing all this stuff. Daniel says, hey, you know, we're not going to do this because he essentially knows that these are actually not the things that make the wise men wise. Right. Um, and and the, the text says uh, in the first chapter of Daniel uh, that in seven and verse 17, that the Lord had given these four men, Daniel and, and the three Hebrew boys, the Lord had given them knowledge and understanding for all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand and interpret dreams. And you know, when when you keep reading through Daniel, uh, in in the next chapter, the, the the king has this dream, and he needs the interpretation. And all these guys who who fit in, all these guys who took the language, ate the food, defiled themselves, and they were unable to produce in the moment when it was needed. So for those of us who are involved in any kind of like professional work or in, in these communities that are pressuring us to compromise like this, we have to remember that when it comes time to actually deliver, when it comes time to actually make an impact in the community, to, to save the world, we need to be ready and grounded and connected to our God, because then we will be able to produce. And there's a great likelihood that many of the folks who have taken in all of this craziness will be standing there looking crazy when you are able to deliver. And then it goes back to, and I'll, I'll get off of it, but it, you also have to have the Hebrew boys because they had that statement, you know, hey, there's a fiery furnace. We're not going to bow. God is able to deliver us. If he doesn't, we still won't bow, right? So there's also got to be the but if not framework. There's a, a great likelihood that the outcome could be that, hey, moment's going to come when somebody needs to deliver. And because we haven't sold out, we'll be ready to deliver. But if persecution comes and they start taking away our professional licenses and, you know, throwing us out of the, you know, our guilds and associations. And if that day comes, hey, God will give us grace for that moment as well. But we must refuse uh, to defile ourselves uh, and to and to bow to these, you know, golden images, uh, if you will. We have to refuse to do that um, at any and all cost. It, it, it's a, a huge thing, Uh I think, and and one of the places where I would encourage us that that it really needs to start is is in the churches and in the pulpit, really talking about this and dealing with this, especially those of us who have a lot of 
professionals in our uh, in our congregations. It's real. I mean, you make a good point. We cannot be the salt in our profession, in our world, if we're doing everything everybody else is doing without question. If we're afraid to question this crazy ideology that comes to us and we're over a bunch of kids, but we want to fit in. So we're going to put these kids need to learn how to read. These kids have are having, um, you know, uh, uh, issues with, you know, suicide and all these things that are getting worse. And, the, you know, you have these new philo- these new ideologies and all this stuff that aren't fixing it. It's getting worse. Yeah. And instead of dealing with the basics that we know work. We want to we want to throw some new stuff in there. We want to we want to keep up and be cutting edge. There's something to being cutting edge, but you can't be cutting edge and not be critical of what's coming to everybody and what you're what you're promoting. The other thing I think we got to hit on is we send our best and brightest out to these universities, out to these spots, and they come back not talking about Jesus at all. They come back able to deconstruct everything but the foolishness that they were uh, miseducated with. And we really need to think about in the churches formation, equipping folks with an apologetic and with the confidence to know, hey, when I go to science class, there's some stuff I need to learn from this subject matter expert who is called my professor. There are also certain things that he might say that might be just his opinion that I'm going to disagree with. And if we can't prepare our kids to do that, then we need to think twice about how we're going about this. And Christians really need to step up. But Chris, I'm going to give you the last word and then we're going to take one more quick break. Yeah, I I love something that you talked about in the article, uh, Justin, about our presentism uh, and this this thought that every new idea is better by virtue of the fact that it's new. Uh, And this is something that has gripped our society and it's dangerous. And those of us who are connected to this timeless truth that we call the gospel, this timeless truth that we uh, discover in the scriptures uh, can be not only valiant representatives of the church, but really valiant preservers of our society. Some of this stuff that is being held forward as good because it is new is actually harmful. And is going to hurt everybody, Christian and non-Christian alike. But the believer, with all of the compassion of Scripture, not hateful, mean, or anything like that. That's not what I'm calling for. But to be able to speak truth and love in this moment is not only a contribution to your church, is not only a contribution to your eternal witness and what you will say when you stand before God. Uh, It is also a contribution to the community and the society that you live in. So uh, I just encourage us to to do this. It's not easy. Doesn't even seem right sometimes or worth it. But let me encourage you that it is. It is so worth it uh, to hold forth on the truth. There it is. We'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? 
As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, just quickly, one other thing that I touched on, Chris, in the article was just this whole back and forth conversation about critical race theory. Uh, you got folks in Tennessee and other places who are trying to say, hey, no school should be able to teach it. You'll lose funding. And it's really becoming kind of a political football, right? It's really being used as a culture war issue. And one of my problems with the way that critical race theory is being used, which is something if you read the article, you should be able to tell it's something I'm actually I do have a critique of and I don't just accept. And I do think we need to push back against some aspects of it. I'm not even a big proponent of teaching it to kids. I mean, kids need to know American history, real American history. And if we teach that in a thoughtful way, we can give them what they need to uh, approach things and try to make things better. I don't know that some of the conclusions that some critical race theorists come to are conclusions that young people really need to have right now. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't propose that. But at the same time, I do realize that some people are taking critical race theory and using it to just ignore racial justice in general. And I have a problem with that because they don't talk about racial justice without talking about critical race theory. But the problem with that is, is that the black church has been talking about racial justice in a theologically sound way for hundreds and hundreds of years. But when this novel theory comes up that really isn't even as deep or as you know systematic as what you would hear from Frederick Douglass or so many other you know Christians who have spoke on this issue in the past, we just want to focus on the new thing. And so what I'm asking Christians to do is not, man, we ain't got to run from, we ain't have to run for critical race theory. There's something that we can gain from it. There's certainly some some things that the majority church can gain from it. No, you should not uh, just accept all of it. There's some things that aren't biblical that some theorists attach to it. But we don't have to be afraid and run from any of this stuff. Wrestle with these secular theories with through a biblical framework, bring them through biblical scrutiny. And move on from there, just like anything else, whether it's capitalism, whether it's anything else. If you hear somebody presenting an ideology or a concept that was made by human hands, again, whether it be CRT, whether it be capitalism or something else, they need to be able to tell you what the perils of that are. They need to be able to tell you why it's not infallible, especially Christians. And so I'll ask you all to do this. The next time you hear a Christian um, 
promoting or defending these ideologies, which is cool. There's some concepts that I'll defend too. ask them what the perils of that thought are. Ask them why it's not inerrant. And if they can't tell you that, then maybe they haven't thought it all the way through. But we should be able to wrestle with this stuff without being afraid, especially if we can stand on the gospel. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree, Justin, with everything that you just said. And I would also just remind those who are in this movement to protect, especially the majority church, from critical race theory to also take the moment uh, for repentance. Uh, and I, I can say that coming out of, you know, a pastor in a denomination that uh, is predominantly uh, white evangelical uh, denomination. And I think there is a, uh, a real moment here to reflect, think about the fact that a lot of the, the young people, especially in our churches, that we want to protect from, you know, those those perils that are in critical race theory. One of the reasons they're drawn to it is because we never gave them a theologically sound framework for dealing with issues of racial inequity and racial uh, injustice. Now, if, if you're still one of the people who want to pretend that those things don't exist, you're not going to hear me. Uh, but I think there are some uh, some sincere folks who see the gaps in CRT want to protect their young folks from it, and I think that's noble. But the first step is to recognize that the the reason, uh, you know, the reason folks are are drinking the 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 CRT stuff is because we haven't given them uh, something pure and refreshing from the scriptures, a theologically sound way uh, to deal with these issues. And I will say, turn to the black church, read some of those folks, uh, because there is a well-thought-out, well-practiced and exercised, theologically sound way to address uh, and, and begin to deal with these issues. Yeah. So I would just make that encouragement as well to take this moment to to reflect and uh Admit what we've done wrong. All of us have done things wrong. That's part of our Christian experience is reflect, repent, move forward in the right direction. Yeah. And I mean, I'm personally of the mind and, and I know I have friends who I've talked to about this and in the same place that I don't really need CRT. Like I've never looked at it like, man, I need answers to this or I need to be able to evaluate this race conversation in America. I've never looked to CRT to do that. I don't ever plan to do that because there's too many other better sources that are biblical to do that now. That doesn't mean that I don't think there's a value there, but people need to recognize before you just go against something. Sometimes you just need to recognize why it exists. Why did it come into existence? Part of it is because the church, as I mentioned in the article and as Chris just mentioned, did not demonstrate the heart for racial justice and a framework for dealing with racial justice in a way that wouldn't would have made it unnecessary, would have made it irrelevant. They wouldn't even have had to come up with it. Uh, so first address that first take responsibility for what the church hasn't done and could do better. But if, if we're always on the defensive, if we're always trying to justify ourselves, which is not biblical, then we'll never take that step. So there's so much more that could be said on that particular issue. We don't have time today, 
But we will continue to have these conversations, as you know, as always. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, brother. If you enjoy what we're doing, go on to Spotify, go on to iTunes and give us that five star. Uh, make a comment. Uh, go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash church politics and give become part of this movement. And as always, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ and camp. Until next time, I'll let you. Oh Lord, I say kingdom.